The following is a recording from ACF Church in Eagle River, Alaska. If you would like to join us, our services are Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. We would love for you to be our guests. We hope you consider partnering in the work God is doing here by joining a life group, serving, and giving. If you would like to give financially to the mission of ACF Church, you can safely give by texting the donation amount to 907-341-4213. Now prepare your hearts to hear God's word. Good morning, ACF Church. How are you guys doing? Man, better than I thought. Well done. Hey, good morning. Uh, we're, we're glad to see you today on this snowy morning. You guys made it here. We're so glad that you uh, came to hang out with us today here. Uh, if you're new, welcome to ACF Church. We're glad that you're here. Um, man, we are uh, excited. We're coming into Easter and excited about the opportunities that we have there and uh, in what's to come here. We want to start off before we get too far into the message today by talking about something we did at Christmas. We're going to do it again coming into Easter, and it's something called Check-In for Change. So real quick, pull out your smartphones. If you have a smartphone and uh, open up Facebook, you can open up Facebook in church. Totally cool with that. Um, and here's what I want you to do is check in here at ACF Church. You can write something about church, about the service. Guy up front looks like Jesus. Whatever you want to write. Um, and uh, post up on Facebook. And for every five check-ins, we're going to be able to give a meal through our partnership with uh, the Downtown Soup Kitchen to somebody who otherwise wouldn't be eating. And so we are redeeming the uselessness of social media today. So that's awesome. So it's just as simple as that. Just check in on Facebook. And it's a great chance for, uh, for you to invite friends to Easter as well. But uh, we have a budget for, um, for all of our uh, communication and advertisement here at church. And so we realized that we, we want to do the most good with what we have. And so this is just a simple way for us to take some of that budget and to use some of that money to help feed people instead of uh, sending out postcards and things like that. And so hope you can partner with us in that. But uh, today is the second week of a two-week series we're calling uh, One More. One more. And the idea for the series came from a quote that I heard a long time ago um, where, where John D. Rockefeller was asked, hey, how much money is enough money? Being one of the most rich men on earth, how much money is enough money? And at the top of his career as an oil man, he answered with this, just one more dollar. Just one more dollar. So that was his philosophy in life. And so as a church, you know, we believe that the currency of earth is, is money. And every, money's kind of what makes the world go down. But, the, but the, the currency of heaven and the currency of God is people. And so for us as a church, what we've realized is that our mission never stops. We never get to quit. At no point do we say like, okay, we can coast, set the cruise control. I've helped enough people. You know, we have, uh, we've preached the gospel enough. We've, we've uh, made a big enough difference in this city. I'm just going to relax. You know, I'm going to just kind of hole up in the woods somewhere in Alaska with, with my family. And I'm not going to impact anybody else's life. That we've realized, you know, at what point can we stop reaching our community? Just one more. At what point can we stop telling our friends about the good news of Jesus? Just one more. At what point can we stop dropping thousands of Easter eggs from the sky for our community? Just one more. Um, really, that's kind of our goal is that we would continue to be on mission no matter what. At no point do we coast, do we cruise, do we say, hey, let's just be this you know, holy Christian huddle on Sunday morning. Let's be in our city. And so if you would open to Matthew chapter 28. This is the text that we're going to be in today. If you don't have a Bible, you can open up your smartphone. I use the, the, uh, the YouVersion Bible app. It's a free app. You can download that and have your Bible in your pocket with you everywhere you go. Uh, you can also follow on the, along the screen behind me here. But let's just read this passage together. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, 
Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain, which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's pray together as we start off today. Jesus, thank you for this, uh, this amazing day that we can, we can get out of our house and, and, and dig our ways out to church today, God, and just be part of this community together. Um, Father, would you speak to us? We have a lot on our minds. There's a lot of distractions. We're thinking about uh, what needs to be done at home. We're thinking about maybe our kids downstairs. Uh, God, we're thinking about Monday and what's going on this week. God, could we just be fully present in this moment? Could we hear from you as our creator, God? And, and would you speak to us in a way that changes us and draws us uh, in, in a deeper relationship with you? God, we love you. We're so grateful for all you give us. Uh, God, for all the ways you provide for us, the ways that you watch over us. God, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm so glad to be with you guys. So I was gone last week, um, was down south. I ate my weight in Chick-fil-A. Who loves Chick-fil-A? Come on now. I know you hate me. Uh, Polynesian sauce, the waffle cut fries, they love it in the south. They call it Christian chicken. And uh, they feed it to you everywhere you go, uh, eating some Christian chicken. And so we, we hung out with some churches and spent some time with uh, some other church leaders just learning about how they're reaching their community and doing ministry. Uh, we don't feel like we have this all figured out here at our church in Alaska. We are just doing our best. And uh, there's a lot of other people that are farther along than we are. So we just thought we'd learn some things from them. So thanks for letting us as a staff get away. And, uh, and now we're back, excited to be with you guys. But here's my question for the morning. Have you ever been in a moment where you completely lost track of what was around you and you got caught up in the moment. Have you ever said that? I got, I got, just, I got caught up in the moment. You know, I just totally got caught up in the situation. Well, my mom, she, uh, she, when I was younger, she signed me up for soccer. Um, it was junior high school. It was during the chubby junior high years. Anybody have chubby junior high years? Anybody in the room? Really? I'm the, okay, that's, I appreciate it. You guys can be honest. You guys can interact too. Hey, in the South, when the preacher says something they like, they say two things. They say, amen. And they say, come on. Let's do this together. Ready? Let's try amen. One, two, three. Amen. All right. I like that. Let's do the second one. Come on. One, two, three. 
Come on. All right, we're in the South now. Thank you. You guys can talk to me. I spent a lot of time putting this stuff together. I'm, I'm excited. So uh, anyway, she signs me up for soccer, and, uh, and, and so I go to my first practice, and the coach is like, hey, okay, uh, I know you don't know anything. I'm going to sign you up for, uh, you're going to be a fullback. And I'm like, awesome. What's a fullback? And he's like, okay, so your job is to stand here. That's pretty much what he said. You got to stand here and make sure the ball doesn't get to your goalie. And I'm like, that's awesome. That's a good job for a fat kid. So uh, give, me the, give me the fullback job. So I just, I was standing there and we played like six games. We didn't win any of the games. And so I'm like, this is a waste of time. Why are we doing any of this? Plus as a fullback, you just kind of stand back there. I remember sitting on the ground at one point picking dandelions. I mean, this is, this is my life as a kid. And so Halfway through the season, we are getting destroyed by this crosstown rival, and it's halftime, and, and we're all hanging out with the coach, and the coach is like, all right, Brian, you're going to be a forward. And I'm like, awesome. What's a forward? And he goes, okay, so a forward, your job is you're going to take the ball, and you're going to try to go score. You want to get the ball into the net. And I'm like, I can do that. This is my moment. This is my shining moment. I get to go kick the ball into the net. So, you know, the whistle blows, and then it just turns into chaos, right? Because, you know, in, like, junior high, I was maybe, like, sixth or seventh grade, it's just kind of like herding chickens around the ball. Everybody just kind of like this amoeba. They follow the ball. And so it's just chaos, and kids are running different directions, and I don't really know what to do. Just follow the ball, follow the ball. And, and finally, this kid from the other team, he kicks the ball right to me, and it hits my legs and just stops there. I mean, I'm doing nothing. It just stops in front of me, and I'm like, this is it. This is it. This is my God-ordained moment. You know, I have the ball. And so I'm like, focus, focus, dribble. So I'm dribbling, I'm dribbling, and I'm making my way towards the goal, and I'm focusing on my dribbling, going towards the goal, and I'm like making a break for it. There's nobody around me. It's just me and the goalie. And I, you know, I rear back, and I kick the ball, and you know, the goalie stretches out to try to stop the ball, and it just misses the goal, just misses it. But I was like, that was awesome. I mean, this was my moment. I, I got the ball, and I made a shot on the goal. This is a super big deal. So then the goalie, he gets up, and I realize, that's my goalie. And then I turn around, and I look, and there's my entire team at the other, other end of the field like this. And I was mortified. I was just like, I mean, you know, just to be completely embarrassed. I was embarrassed enough to play soccer, but this was one of those terrible moments. My goal with you guys, by the way, is to kind of always take myself off the pedestal a little bit. So if you're ever wondering, this is, this is what I do. I tell stories about um, how I stink at things to make you... Uh, connect with me because I'm just, uh, man, I blow it all the time. But this was one of those moments where I, I was so focused on what I wanted to do, focused on getting the ball into the goal that I completely lost track. I think I just thought, where's the closest goal? That's, that's the one. Let's go. And I just went. I didn't think about it at all. So my question for you as you, as you sit here today is this. What if you were doing a great job of shooting at all the wrong things? And what if your life has been spent doing a really good job at shooting at the wrong things. Because as I look at my life, I do this all the time. I get so focused on my family and on my kids, on my situation, my finances, and, and my friends that I lose track of the bigger picture of what we're supposed to be doing. Like, why am I really here? And I end up shooting for all the wrong things, and I forget that Jesus gave us two very simple instructions. He says, if you don't know anything else, if you don't know what to do, simply do this. Love me and love people. Serve me and serve people. Amen, right? Come on. Serve me. Serve. So that's what we're here for. But I lose track of that because I get so caught up in my situation. And so as I was reading this passage a couple of weeks ago, as I was preparing for Easter, this passage, this is the, the post-resurrection passage. 
This is Sunday. This is essentially the Easter Sunday passage. Jesus has risen. And things get really interesting after Jesus comes to life and how people respond. And as I was reading this, I ran across three major barriers. Three barriers, I think, that I see in my life to being the person that God wants me to be and helping people around me. And the first thing that I see is this, a feeling of inadequacy. A feeling of inadequacy. Verse 5 says, But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Okay, so these women, it's Mary, Jesus' mom, and then Mary, a friend of his, who are going to the tomb. Now, Jesus would have been put into this tomb and wrapped in all these, these cloths. I mean, kind of like a mummy, if you think, like, wrapped up like a mummy. But uh, scholars believe that, like, it would have happened very quickly. He was, he was killed and crucified like a criminal. And so they wouldn't have done that good of a job of taking care of the body. And so these two women are going to the tomb to, to see the body of Jesus. They're not trying to find the resurrected Jesus. At this point, he's been dead for three days. You know, and, and for just like any of you, if you had a friend that's been dead for three days, you're, you're not looking for a live person. You're going to go see the, the dead person. And, and they, were, they were taking these spices. And what they would do is they would treat the bodies with these spices to try to kind of slow down the decomposition process and make it so that people could go in and they could see the body. And so they were going, probably not looking for anything special. When they show up, they see this angel. And I love that it says he was, he was sitting there, like lounging. Like, hey, what's up? Not a big deal. Jesus is alive. Just like we said. Just like you had expected. He is alive. And, and they're freaking out. And it's like he's glowing. And it's just a crazy moment. And then he says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and take this message. I want you two women to be the first people to go and tell of the resurrected Messiah. And for these ladies, what they would have said is, you got the wrong people. You got the wrong people. Because in their society, the testimony of a woman was almost worthless. For a woman in their society to testify, it would have been basically a worthless testimony. And so they're trying to spread this good news that Jesus is alive. And so God strategically chooses two women to go and be the first ones who do this. And so what I, what I connect with in this is that in that moment, they go and they do it, but it says they do it with fear. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. Will anybody listen to me? And I can imagine in their hearts they were saying, God, you, you picked the wrong people to do this. I mean, you should have, you should have picked you know, a man with some authority, you know, somebody with, with some power in, this, in the society so that you could spread the good news and people would believe us. But this just, it's more evidence that, that Jesus is alive, that this wasn't just some kind of manufactured lie that he chooses these women. Now, um, I don't know if you ever feel unqualified, but I feel unqualified all the time. In fact, um, every time this church grows, I feel a little dumber, just so you know. Like, every time you bring your friends and every time the attendance grows, I've been doing this. If you don't know my story, I've been, I've been teaching here for about a year and a half. Um, before that, I was leading worship. Uh, and I'd been leading the music at churches for about, uh, I think, 11 years. So I feel really comfortable up here with a guitar. This is like, I don't get nervous right here. It's for some reason, the three feet between there and here, like I just kind of want to puke when I get about here. Um, every week I get a little nervous and I'm just going, okay, God, get me out of the way. Because I think, God, you know, you could have picked probably a better communicator, 
You could have picked a better leader, somebody with more experience, you know, than, than me. And, and so it's funny, when churches grow, sometimes people are like, Brian, I'm really praying that you just don't become some kind of like arrogant pastor, you know, which I totally get that. that there can be arrogance as churches grow. But also, I'm kind of like, would you just pray for my confidence too? Um, because sometimes we need confidence, don't we? Anybody need confidence? Yes, amen. I need some confidence sometimes. Come on. Uh, I do because... You guys, you have some gifts and abilities, and you have influence in ways that nobody else has. And if you're not doing the work God calls you to do, who's doing it for you? Nobody. Nobody's going to do it. I mean, somebody else might step in and do it, but when God specifically gifts you with, with abilities and talents and resources and people in your life, he wants to use you. And so these two women, I just connect with them. They're probably going, I don't I don't know why you're using us, God, but, it, but what an honor, right? What an honor to be the ones who are heralding the story of the risen king. That's amazing. And so I can imagine they were like, you got the wrong people. Here's what I want to tell you this morning is this. Don't let your deficiency determine your destiny. And somebody needs to hear that. Don't let your deficiency determine your destiny, okay? Your weaknesses don't determine necessarily where you go. And in fact, as you look at the Bible narrative, I love that God chooses the least qualified people to do the most amazing things. Isn't that cool? Like, that's the story that we read is like, he just chooses people that at the end of all this stuff, when God moves in miracles, they, they step back and they go, that wasn't me, right? I mean, because they know themselves. They know it's just not you that's doing the work. This is a bigger thing than you. So it's a good thing. When you feel weak and you feel inadequate, but you're doing it anyway, that's a, that's a great place to be. be. Be afraid when you feel adequate. Get a little nervous when you're like, I think I got this. That's when you should be nervous. Number two, second barrier we see is an obsession with money. This is going to hurt a little. Um, I feel like <laughs> giving you a physical. Just get ready. Um, verse 12, and when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep, which is awesome. Okay, so you're a Roman soldier, and uh, you go to your boss, you're like, hey, what are we doing tonight, boss? You're going to go guard a dead person. Awesome. Some of you are on, like, security duty, and <laughs> so you know how, like, boring night times can be sometimes. These guys, what's your job? Stand by a grave. Awesome. So they're hanging out by the grave. All of a sudden, earthquake, you know, the ground starts moving, this, this stone starts rolling away, there's an angel, it's like, he's glowing like fire, and these guys are terrified. And so what's interesting is that these would have been really the first people to know about Jesus being resurrected. And these soldiers, they saw it happen, and they were like, it says they were like dead people. They just laid there frozen, like, I don't know what to do. And so they see it, and then the elders and, and the leaders of the day that rejected Jesus, they didn't want the story of the, of the resurrected king to, to go anywhere. And they said, okay, you need to conjure up this lie. And the lie is going to go something like this. While we were sleeping, somebody stole him. <laughs> Which is just hilarious. It's like, this is like something my, my three-year-old would say. I don't know, Dad. I was sleeping and somebody stole. I, because if you just think about it, that lie um, kind of dismantles itself, Right? First of all, if you were sleeping, then how do you know what happened while you were sleeping, right? Second of all, if you were awake, then you would have known who stole him. And probably these guys were pretty strong dudes. 
you know, with swords and stuff. They probably could have stopped anybody. So either way, it's just a terrible lie that, uh, that doesn't go anywhere. But these guys, they're working for a living. They're just trying to kind of make a buck, trying to get by. And it says that they were given a sufficient sum of money. Now, we don't know how much a sufficient sum of money. Maybe it was a day's wages. Maybe it was a week's or a month or maybe a whole year's worth of wages that they were offered to reject this truth that Jesus had come to life. So I was reading this and I was like, I I just was confronted with this question. What would I do for a boatload of money? What would I do for a lot of money? So got some M&Ms here because I love M&Ms. Anybody like M&Ms? Some M&Ms people? Okay, M&Ms. All right, here we go. You sit in the front row, you get chosen. Okay. So, what would you do for an M&M? How about this? Would you uh, break a law for an M&M? <laughs> Smart man. Would you jaywalk for an M&M? Okay, there we go. M&Ms. Awesome. Very well. Okay. How about this? Would you kill somebody for an M&M? Probably not. What if it was Hitler? Would you kill Hitler for an M&M? Okay, totes. Awesome. <laughs> M&Ms. Um... Would you steal from somebody for an M&M? Wouldn't steal. How about it was like ketchup packets from McDonald's? No, it's, it's stealing. If you, didn't buy the, if you didn't buy the meal, it's stealing, bro. Okay, so here's my point. Here's the deal. We all think like, no, like my faith isn't for sale. I'm not for sale. Like you can't buy me. I'm my own man, right? Until you put us in the right situation, until you give us a sufficient amount of motivation, and then all of a sudden our morals start to waver, don't they? Come on, somebody's been there. Somebody feels that where you're like, oh yeah, no, I'm not for sale until you give me the right situation, the right moment, and all of a sudden, and I could tell you stories in my own life where I'm like, man, I never thought I would be tempted this way, but this seems way too easy. You're welcome for the M&Ms, by the way. Here's the hard truth. For most of you, you're like, well, Brian, nobody's offered me money to not be a Christian, you know? Nobody lately has said, hey, if you wouldn't go to ACF Church today, I'm going to give you, you know, 500 bucks or 1,000 bucks or a grand. Or if you would just denounce your faith in Jesus and just say, like, he's just not real, even though you believe he is real, I'm going to give you 1,000 bucks, you know, 500 bucks, uh, you know, 10,000. What would it take? So that seems like a weird situation. We don't end up in that situation. But here's, here's where I find myself is that by withholding the resources God has given me, I am actually taking a bribe to oppose the spreading of the truth. By withholding the resources God has given me to be used to expand the kingdom and to share the good news, I am actually taking a bribe to oppose the spreading of the truth. Does that hurt? Because that hurts me a little bit. When I think about it, you know, I think, okay, well, I'm not being bribed because nobody's giving me money, but I also hold on to things that I should be giving away, right? I hold on, there's a lot of things, and you're like, well, maybe money's not your thing, but time's your thing. You're like, no, Brian, I get it. I'm a Christian, you know, I, I give, I, you know, I help um, this ministry over here, I tithe at ACF Church, I, money's fine, but when I talk to you about, you know, I want you to just go spend 10 minutes listening to your neighbor talk about their life. I want you to go be part of this, uh, this ministry that we're doing. I want you to, to, to consider serving in, in ACF Church. I want you to give away time to go help mentor a teenager that just needs an adult who cares about him. All of a sudden, you're like, uh, hold up, right? What we need to know is like, you guys, we can't do everything, and I get that. But there are things that the Bible calls us to, 
There are things that are placed right in front of you, opportunities that you have to expand the kingdom of God. And when you get that feeling like, oh man, this is it. I should do it. I should do it. And you're like, no, no, not going to do it. And the opportunity leaves you. When you do that, you're literally taking a bribe in opposition to the spreading of the gospel. And if you're not convicted about that, I am. I'm really convicted about that because I think I'm a sellout. I think I am. I think I sell out for things that I think are going to make me happy right now. Things that are going to, you know, fill up my time and make me feel good. And so I sell out for those things. And then, you know what, I lay in bed at night and I wonder, like, am I really, like, what if I'm missing it? What if I'm doing a really good job shooting for all the wrong things? And life's cruising along, but I'm actually not making a difference. So the the third thing that I see is this. The third thing in opposition to us truly helping people is an overpowering shame. Overpowering shame. Verse 16 says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. Now, um, I'm no mathematician, but I thought there were 12 disciples. 11, 12. Who's number 12? Where's he at? Kill himself. What's his name? Judas. So we're missing Judas. Where did Judas go? Judas, uh, he has hung himself at this point in the narrative. He has killed himself because what we know about Judas is Judas sold out. He was offered 30 pieces of silver to identify Jesus. He goes over, identifies Jesus by kissing him on the cheek, ironically. And in that moment, a Roman soldier grabs Jesus, takes him, tries him, ultimately crucifies him for a little bit of cash. What we know about Judas is that um, he had a special job with the disciples. His job was the treasurer. He was the, he had, he was the money guy. Now, every good organization needs a money guy or a money girl. We as a church, just so you know, I don't count the money. We have a treasurer. Praise the Lord. That's not something I want to do or something I'm good at. But we have somebody who does the treasurer money, the stuff. But the problem with being the one that's involved with money all the time is it can kind of turn into an obsession. And what we know about Judas is he wasn't just counting the money. He's also kind of taking a little bit from the till and putting it in his pockets once in a while. Judas was a thief. And the Bible says that Jesus chose Judas specifically because he knew he would betray him to fulfill the prophecy that Jesus would ultimately be crucified. So he, he chose Judas because he knew that he wasn't an upstanding guy, that he would ultimately take a bribe so that he could give away Jesus. So Judas isn't here, but we, what we do know about Judas is after he sells out Jesus, he gets convicted. We read that he tries to bring back the money to, to all the priests. He's like, just take it back. He has this feeling of conviction in that moment, and he's so overcome by his shame that he ultimately goes and he kills himself. So I was thinking about this. How does shame play into the way that God uses you? How does shame keep you from being used by God? I see this in my life because here's what I do. When I screw up, I gravitate towards shame. That's what I do. I gravitate towards, if I can feel bad and wallow uh, in my mistake, if I can feel bad enough about it, maybe that'll make God forgive me. Does anybody else struggle with that? Like if I, if I can just wallow in my mistake a little bit, like I'm, I'm going to feel almost like I'm paying penance for my mistake. Here's the problem. Jesus already paid. Jesus already paid for it. My shame has been taken away. There's no place. Come on. There's no, there's no place for shame in the life of a believer. There's no place in our theology for shame. Now, that's different than remorse. 
If you never feel bad about screwing up, then you're not actually being honest with yourself. I mean, we should be able to look at our lives and go, yeah, blew it, big time there. Like, that's pretty bad. But shame is a whole nother level where we wallow in it almost as if to pay for something that's already been paid for. Don't pay for something that Jesus has already been paid so, so don't let shame derail you. I know it can. I know it can be a way that we try to get in right with God, but shame does nothing to help the situation. So a feeling of inadequacy, an obsession with money, and an overpowering shame. Three things that we see in this post-resurrection story that I think keep us from doing what God is wanting us to do. So if you're here and you're like, okay, Brian, well, what does God want me to do? I'm glad you asked because it keeps going. Here are your marching orders. Verse 19, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You didn't know what to do when you came to church today. Now you do. There it is. If you didn't know what your mission was, you're like, well, Brian, that's cool. I don't have a calling. I don't have anything specific that I think God wants me to do. Right there, Jesus, his final marching orders are to simply go and make disciples. Now, if you don't know what a disciple is or if you've heard that term thrown around a lot in the church, it's really simple. It simply means a learner. So you're, you're supposed to go and make learners, teaching them all that Jesus has shown you and then baptizing them. Because at some point, they're going to they're gonna want Jesus. So you're going you're to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're called to do. Now, this whole idea of discipleship, I think, is often really overcomplicated in the church. So I don't know what it means to you, but I think sometimes when things get really complicated, we just don't do them because we're like, I don't know what to do or where to begin. So I came up with five lies that I think you believe about discipleship. And if you're like, well, Brian, that's pretty arrogant to say that I believe five lies, well, then prove me wrong, okay? So maybe you don't, but we're going to walk through these. The first is this, that it takes an education. Discipleship takes an education. Now, here, let me ask you a question. Have you ever learned something from somebody that has not mastered the thing that they're teaching you? Like, have you ever learned something from somebody that's just a little bit better at it than you are? Because I know I have in my life. In discipleship, when I hear of learners, then that must mean that I'm a teacher. Now, if I'm a teacher, like in our society, if you want to go be a teacher for ASD, that means you're going to go to school, you're going to be vetted, and you're going to be a master at whatever it is that you're teaching because we don't want to teach people the wrong thing, right? Like if you're not good at it, you don't want to be a teacher. But the thing is, when it comes to discipleship, it's different. It's different. You see, there is always somebody who's one step beyond you and one step behind you. There's always somebody who's one step beyond you and one step behind you. I have people in my life who have not mastered the art of following Jesus. I have not met anybody yet who has mastered the art of following Jesus, but I have met people who know what that looks like in their life and have, have, have some education and some experience that I don't have. And so those are the people that I gravitate towards and I watch them live and I ask them out to lunch and I spend time with them. I also have people in my life who are a step behind me. They maybe have a little less experience. They, they uh, maybe haven't walked with Jesus quite as long. And so I, I'm able to spend some time with them, invest in them. And so you need to know this. If you're like, well, I don't disciple people because I haven't figured out this following Jesus thing yet, good luck at that. 
Because if you wait to figure out Jesus to disciple somebody, you will never disciple anybody. So this is for everybody. If you're a teenager, you should be discipling other teenagers. If you're in your 60s and 70s, there should be somebody that you're discipling and that you're also learning from. We should always be learning from somebody and teaching somebody. So, you, so just think right now, who is it in your life? Who are you learning from and who is following you? The second thing is this. Second lie is it will happen organically. We like organic, don't we? What's the world coming to? Everything's organic. So Amanda, my wife, and I, we always have this conversation. Just this week, she was like, I want you to buy eggs, but not the, not the regular eggs. We want the cage-free organic eggs, right? It's got to be the cage-free. And I'm like, do they taste different? She's like, no. Like, do they look different? No. Like, do they cost different? Yes. Like, what are we doing? Why, why would we do this? But anyway, we love, we love organic, you know? And I think this works its way into our faith that we just kind of hope that discipleship's going to happen. Like, maybe you're like this. You're like, Brian, no, I'm ready for this. I want to disciple. As soon as somebody comes up to me and says, will you disciple me? I'm going to say yes. As soon as, as soon as somebody comes up and says, hey, would you tell me what it takes to be a Christian? I'm totally going to answer them. Like, as soon as somebody wants this from me, then I'm like, I'm ready to respond, Brian. Like, isn't that, like, natural? I don't want to be that weird person that's trying to make people do things they don't want to do. I'm just kind of waiting for it to happen organically. You guys, this is not how it works. It doesn't just, I mean, it, you've probably got a story of somebody who actually asked, would you disciple me? And so you're just waiting for it. But in general, this takes effort. I love that the call here, the Great Commission, it begins with what word? Go. Go and make disciples. Far too many churches don't, they don't go. They, they, they're like, no, we're a missional church. We're here for our city because our doors are unlocked. I mean, that, that's a crazy logic, right? I mean, if they wanted to break down the doors and come in, they could. So aren't we here for our community? Aren't we uh, being part of the Great Commission? No, you're not. You have to actually leave <laughs> to go do it. You have to go into your city to go do it. This church will not be a church on mission if you're not going and, and seeking out people and inviting them into your life. And it doesn't have to be weird. It doesn't have to be weird. It's simply letting them live life with you. The third lie that I see is this. It begins at salvation. The discipleship. So like, okay, Brian, when somebody at church says, hey, I want to follow Jesus, then you just like call me up and say, hey, Bill, uh, this guy wants to follow Jesus. Um, you now can disciple him. So let's just create a process like that so that when people follow Jesus, they can get discipled. Here's the problem. Jesus had 12 disciples. How many of them were with him after the crucifixion? You said. None of them. Because as we read the Gospels, we realize these guys didn't get who Jesus was. Like, essentially, they weren't believers, at least most of them, right up until the crucifixion. Most of them were like, I don't know, Jesus, I'm just still not getting this. And so we read things from the other side of history and we get frustrated, like, how, how could you guys not get it? Did you see him, like, you know, multiplying all this food and healing the blind and the lame? Like, that wasn't enough for you? Apparently, you can see miracles, and if you want to reject God, you will. And these guys, right up in the last minute, were like, I still don't know if you're really the Messiah. I'm not really sure you're the guy. And so, so here's the thing, were they still disciples? Yeah. So what did that look like in Jesus' life? 
They walked down streets together. Jesus healed people. He was feeding people. He's like, hey, go grab a basket. Go feed some people. That's what we're doing today. We're feeding people. We're going to walk around. We're going we're gonna to talk about, um, we're gonna talk about some, some teaching. We're going to learn some theology together. But, but Jesus, it was really simple. He just said like, hey, follow me. That's all he would do. He'd say, hey, come follow me. That's all it means to be teaching people, to be a disciple maker. Say, hey, come follow me. And so what you're going to realize is that you probably have disciples in your life that you didn't think were disciples. Like people that are watching you, that, you know, you've got a place of influence in their life. And they're watching how you act with your wife and with your kids and with your coworkers and with your friends. They're watching how you live. Maybe they're that person that you're like, hey, yeah, we just invite that guy over for dinner. He's a you know, single guy. You know, he's always eating pizza rolls for dinner. We just kind of have him over once in a while. And he hangs out with us and watches us, you know, do life as a family. You may not realize, but you're making a disciple. That person's learning more than maybe they would if you just sat them down and said, we're just going to open the Bible. I'm just going to try to do a theology lesson. Like you're teaching more theology by the way that you act than maybe by the way that you speak. And so, listen, I think it's a lot simpler than that. And I think um, somebody who can be a disciple even if they don't follow Jesus. They're just, they're learning. They're in the process. Maybe they're not ready to say, I want Jesus yet, but they see something in you and they want it. Number four is this. It's a burden. Disciple making is a burden. It's just not a burden in the sense that you really want to do it. A burden in the sense that it's just a heavy weight. It's like dragging around an anchor. Like, okay, Brian, it just sounds like you're just wanting me to, to do more work in my life and I'm working pretty hard Anyway, you guys, I don't think discipleship has to be a burden. I think it can be a joy. And so as a church, we have different kinds of groups. We have life groups, growth groups, and then the third group is called what? Anybody know? Social groups, right. So we have social groups. Now, to some people, depending on your religious background, you might be like, well, that doesn't sound very deep. Um, But what happens at our social groups can be some of the deepest stuff that happens anywhere. Because all a social group is us saying like, hey, what do you love to do? You love to go four-wheeling? We'll do a social group, and you invite all your friends to be a part of this four-wheeling group. And, and you know, you got people that are followers of Jesus, people that aren't. And you go out and you go four-wheeling together. You enjoy each other, and you have intentional conversations. That's all it is. You love to go knitting? Knitting group. We've had a knitting group, right? And ladies get together, you do some knitting, and they have great conversations around knitting. I've never been there. I hear that they have great conversations around knitting. And so you can start community and be discipling, doing what you love. You guys, this is when ministry gets exciting. It doesn't really take that much of a, of a shift in your life to become somebody who's intentional about teaching people to follow Jesus, simply watching you. So it doesn't have to be such a burden. The fifth is this, it's optional. The fifth lie is that discipleship is optional. The great commission is often called the great omission. That thing we just kind of forgot about. You know, we showed up to church. Maybe we gave a little money once in a while. Uh, maybe we, you know, we, we, we pray occasionally with our family. You know, crack open the Bible sometimes. But there's that discipleship thing. What most people think is like discipleship is Christianity 3.0. You know, there's like Christianity 1.0. Just try to get my life together. Just, just try to fix myself. And then at some point, I'm going to get things together to the point that I'm going to have disciples at Christianity 3.0. But it's not Christianity 3.0. Discipleship is Christianity 
like right at the beginning, when we first start to follow Jesus, we can make disciples. And it's as much of a command as anything else in the Bible. And we have to take that seriously. Like if we're not doing this, if we're not thinking in terms of helping somebody else to be a learner, then we're not being obedient to God. Because it, like I started off, it starts off with, do you love God and are you loving people? And if you're not loving people, then you're not fulfilling what Jesus calls us to do. So it's not optional. This is part of who we are as a church is that we're disciple makers. And now if you're here today, I was just thinking like <laughs> this whole message, there's probably somebody here who's like not a Christian or is just checking out church and you're like, this is really strange. The guy up front is trying to convince all the Christians to care about people. Does that seem weird? Um, here's the thing. We are here at this church not because we have got this thing figured out. Like we gather as a church because we need help, because we don't have it figured out, because we need grace, and we need to learn how to get out of our own way, you guys. I mean, if you just look at your life, the thing that's keeping you from the most fulfilling life that you can experience is probably you. And so we gather together just to get ourselves out of, the own, out of our own way sometimes, just so that we can learn what it really means to care for people around us. And so we've set this audacious goal for Easter um, we're praying that God would bring 6% of the community of Eagle River through our doors. 6%. Now you're like, where did you get that number? Well, at Christmas, we had 5% of our community come through the doors of ACF Church, which is awesome, right? How cool is that? Amen, right? 5% of the community in church. So good. So we said, well, what's the prayer with this series? Let's just do one more. Let's make it 6%. I mean, I'm just going to keep going. I'm just telling you now that Christmas, we're going to be praying for 7%. So it's just going to keep going. Now, this sounds a little ridiculous. That's well over 2,000 people um, that we're praying would come through these doors. We're doing four services. We're doing, uh, we've got screens out in the lobby that we're going to be setting up for a video venue. And so, you guys, listen, time is short and the harvest is plenty. We've got a city in desperate need of the good news of Jesus. And you've got it. So share it. And be praying this week. Pray with your kids. Pray as a family. Pray for 6% to come through these doors and it's not going to happen without you. It's not going to happen if you're not the ones inviting your friends. And the cool thing is it doesn't end at Easter. In fact, it gets better because then you're going to go to lunch with that person after and you're going to be like, what did you think about that? And they're going to be like, I don't know. I you know, grew up Catholic and that was really strange. Or you know, I, I never went to church before and that was kind of bizarre and there was music and you know, like it was just a weird experience. And you get to kind of help debrief them. And then you invite them back the next week as we start a new series. It's going to be awesome. And so I want to encourage you to do that. So we're going to close with this. We've got this chair up here. It's been kind of a, kind of a visual for this whole series. Um, as we were flying back from South Carolina, or I'm sorry, as we were flying to South Carolina, we were leaving Anchorage. And uh, Danny Venhouse, who's part of our church, Danny went with us. And he had to get his ticket late. And so he showed up at the airport, and he had a ticket, but have you ever had this happen where you show up and you've got a ticket, but you don't have a seat assignment yet? And he's like, I got to go up to the gate. I don't know where my seat is. And so he gets up to the gate, and the lady's like, uh, sorry, you have to like fly on standby. I'm not sure you're going to make, make it on the flight, which I don't get how you can buy a plane ticket and not make it on the flight. But somehow this, this all works out. So there's six of us, and we're like, well, we got to get on the plane. We can't miss our flight and wait. And he's like, hey, get on the plane, and hopefully I'll get on. And so we're loading onto the airplane, and there's seats all over the place, seats everywhere. And so I'm texting Danny. I'm like, hey, uh, no problem. There's seats everywhere. I'm sure you're going to get on the plane. No, you know, no issues. 
And then they closed the door on the airplane. And like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, seriously, you're going to take off with empty seats? And so we start backing away. And he, he texts us back. He's like, uh, sorry, they're going to fly me to D.C. in three hours or something like that. And I'm like, what is going on? We're going to fly without a full airplane. Apparently somebody at the last minute made some kind of decision that it was a long, you know, like a cross-country flight and they couldn't fill up the airplane or something like that. But I'm just sitting there and I'm frustrated because we've got a really tight schedule and I'm looking around and I'm seeing all these open seats and all I can think about is like, Danny's supposed to be in one of these seats. And as I was thinking about today and I'm thinking about Easter, you guys, as you look around and you see like seats around you, for most of you, you're like, I like it when there's seats because I get elbow room at church. Like, don't put me next to somebody. It's weird. It gets hot in here. Give me leg room. Give me elbow room. But you know why you think that? Because there's not a name on that seat. It changes everything when you think about that seat and you think about, that's my neighbor. That's my mother. That's my coworker. That's my friend. When you put a name on the seat, it changes everything. And so we say this a lot as a church that an empty seat is a serious problem. This is an issue when there's seats in the room that are empty. And so as you look at the seat as we worship today, I want you to think about that person that needs to hear about Jesus. That person that needs you in their life, caring about them, being intentional to show them what it looks like to experience God's grace on a daily basis. So this is our week, you guys. I want to encourage you to be a part of it. Make sure you get your tickets in the lobby. If you don't have tickets yet, get them for 7 a.m. <laughs> that one hasn't filled up yet, as you can imagine. Uh, so get some 7 a.m. tickets, but bring your friends. You guys get extra for them. And I'm so excited about what we're going to experience this next week. Also, if you're not going to, um, if you've never been to a Good Friday service, you guys, I like Easter, but I almost like Good Friday a little bit better. Um, you know, we celebrate the resurrection a lot. But sometimes we don't talk about why that matters as much as we should. And so this, that's this Friday. I encourage you to be a part of that. Let's pray together as we close. Jesus, we just stand as a church and confess, God, that, uh, God, we need your heart for the people around us. God, I can look around and just be excited that there's room, but God, I know there are people that I pass by every day. I don't even look them in the eye. And God, they're going through things and experiencing things that they, they need your touch on. God, I live next to people, and I, God, I see people all the time that I know need your grace. God, so would you just give us all your heart for our community, for our city? God, we confess too, God, we, we sell out. God, I sell out for things that I think will make me feel better, things that will fill some kind of void in my life, make me feel better as a man. And God, really, they don't. So God, could you give me vision that, that I might be shooting for the right things in my life? God, so that at the, at the end of my days, I'll look back and see that, God, I was part of building something that will withstand, God, the test. Now, I know everything else will go away, but the people are going to be what stands. So God, I, I just pray, give me a heart for people. Break my heart for the brokenness in my community, God. And I just pray for 6% as we come into Easter. Not, not so that we can say that 6% came through our doors, God, but because we want to, to see your kingdom movement grow in our city, God. We pray for every other church, every other Bible-believing church in our community, God, that they'd be full to the brim of people that would come and to hear the good news of Jesus. So could we honor the call that you've placed on our lives? Could we resist the barriers that get in our way 
God, and can we be a church on mission for the kingdom? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks.